Good morning. Good morning. I um, I got I got Shayla. I'm going to repurpose this, but I will give it back to you. Um, I got a new Bible this week, and I was like super excited to, to preach from it. And then it got to like yesterday, and I was like, I can't preach from this. I don't know where anything is. Um, like it's different. <laughs> uh, but I I panicked, and I'm not using my new Bible, so we'll be fine. Um, thank you. If you're joining us online. Um, here in person, we are continuing our With God Life series and this pretty fast clip through the Old Testament. And the whole idea is to give us an idea of how God is at work in the course of human history. And there are people who choose life with him and there are people who choose life without him. And so we're continuing this series and it's kind of fun because a few weeks ago I was able to talk about how in the Old Testament narrative and it picks up again in the new, kingship is coming. And today uh, we're well into kingship in Israel. We've been through Saul, we've been through David and now we're gonna spend a couple of weeks with Solomon. We're making pretty great progress. But I want to take a couple of minutes to recap where we've been, um, because I feel like this week's message is a really great continuation of what it looks like to continue to live a with God life. Now, if you weren't here a month ago when I preached, that's okay. You're not going to be lost. You're going to be fine. Um, or if you're just joining us for the first time, you're going to be fine. I'm going to give you a, just a quick breakdown of where we've been. So at the beginning of Samuel, we talked about this idea of kingship and how this is kind of an underlying question throughout the biblical narrative, within biblical stories. Who is really king? Now, the with God life says that the Lord is king. The Lord is center. Everything flows from him. The choice we make is whether or not we want to see him as king or do we want to choose our own autonomy, our own authority, our own ability to determine what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. We also talked about how the with God life is the God with you life. When we choose to follow the Lord, he does not leave us alone. What he has, he graciously and willingly gives us. Colossians 1 tells us that he has transferred us into his kingdom. We are, the, we are in the kingdom of his son. We are co-heirs with Christ adopted sons and daughters. The power of the Holy Spirit is with us and in us. The with God life is the God with you life. Back to the story though, because we're not there yet. Uh, when the elders of Israel came to Samuel and asked for a king, their idea of kingship was very different from the Lord's idea of kingship. They wanted a king who could control Yahweh, because that's how kingship worked in the ancient Near East. The king controlled the gods. Yahweh's idea of kingship is considerably different. He wants a king who will serve him, who will trust him, a vassal king, a person for the Lord to use to represent and reflect him to the people. Now, we learned pretty quickly that Saul was not this king. Oh, Saul. Saul trusted the Lord sometimes when it suited him, but more often than not, he trusted himself. His own pride in his ability led to his downfall. And because of that, the Lord removed the kingdom from him. There would be no dynasty. There would be no house of Saul. It ended with him. David, on the other hand, was quite different. He trusted the Lord. He understood the centrality of the Lord. Even in the midst of moral failure, 
which we saw, we see quite a bit in the life of David, he humbled himself before the Lord. It was never the end because he understood that the Lord, that Yahweh is king, a man after God's own heart. That's what David is called. That's what David is known for. That's what kingship is supposed to be for the people of Israel, a king who lives a with God life. Now, this actually culminates in a pretty important passage in the whole scheme of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. So David, there's peace in the land. David comes to the Lord, and he tells the Lord, I want to build you a house. Like I'm, building, like, I'm building myself a house. How is it we have not built you a house? The temple was not yet a thing. The ark of God was kept in a tent. That's how it had been for hundreds of years, and that's how it still was. And David was like, I want to change that. But the Lord flips the conversation on him. David says, I want to build you a house. The Lord says, I didn't ask for a house. I don't need a house. I've never needed a house. But he changes the conversation. And instead of, the Lord, of David building the Lord a house, the Lord says, I'm going to build you a house. And that's what happens in 2 Samuel 7. He says, I will make you a house. Your offspring from your body, I will establish his kingdom forever. He will build a house for my name. I will be his father. He will be my son. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. That's what the Lord said to David. Okay, David, that sounds good. Now, this becomes a hugely important passage in the, Old in the Bible in general. 2 Samuel 7 is huge. And it's what's known as the Davidic covenant, this unbreakable agreement that the Lord makes with David that his kingdom would be established forever. Now, we're going to learn pretty quickly um, next week and the weeks that follow that David's descendants are not great. They're pretty abysmal, actually. It's, it's uh, uh, just a continual learning in how to fail, you know? But, but... In the midst of all this failure, who do we meet in the New Testament? Who is this man from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jesse, from the line of David? Who is called son of David? There is one king, and his kingdom will be established forever. We know what's coming. We're just not there yet. So we're going to bring it back. We're going to settle back into the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about Solomon. So Solomon is David's son, but not his firstborn son, which would be the natural progression of kingship. That's how kingship works. It goes to the firstborn son, succession. He's not even the secondborn son or the third. We're not following a true line of succession with Solomon because that's not how the Lord works. So Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. And we all know the story. David sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof. They have an affair. She gets pregnant. David has her husband killed off in battle. He takes her in as a wife. Bathsheba gives birth to a son who dies. David repents before the Lord, laments his sin, um, is, is very grievous, but the Lord blesses David and Bathsheba with another son. That's Solomon. And that's the beauty of the Bible. It's not that the story is over in the midst of moral failure. It's what we do with moral failure and whether or not we can humble ourselves before the Lord and repent. So it's a long and windy road that kind of leads us to where we are right now. But go ahead and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 
A couple of David's sons rebel and try to seize the throne, and it gets pretty ugly, um, but the rebellions are ultimately squashed, and the kingdom gets established in the hand of Solomon. And Solomon becomes this character study in wisdom versus folly. That's going to be a huge theme in his life and in his writings. He's credited with writing Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He becomes a prolific writer. And we'll see this concept of wisdom appear quite often. So he's roughly 30 years old when he becomes king. Uh, and let's take a look at how he gets this train moving. 1 Kings 3, picking up in verse 1. So Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was a great high place Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So Solomon is established as king. We see almost immediately that we're not going to experience perfection with Solomon. He's not a total failure yet, but we have still got some issues that the author is pointing to here. Verse 2, he made an alliance with the Pharaoh of Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 3, he loves the Lord. He's following in his father's footsteps. Verse 3 again, sacrifices are being made in the high places. So it's already kind of a mixed bag here. Deuteronomy tells us that intermarrying with foreign nations is not a good idea because foreign nations will bring in foreign gods. Is that going to be good for the people of Israel? No, it's not. <laughs> they have a hard enough time staying faithful to Yahweh as it is, so it's not going to be great. The high places referred to in verse 3 are talking about the leftover centers of worship that existed in the land prior to Israel coming in. So altars to Baal, Asherah poles, these kinds of things. Asherah was a fertility goddess that was often associated with the worship of Baal. So this is what they're coming in and kind of taking over. And Deuteronomy 7 forbids the use of high places for worship of God because they represent a threat to pure worship. It wasn't an altar created for the Lord. It's a leftover place of worship. And Deuteronomy tells us that's not going to fly. Now it happens here in 1 Kings chapter 3 because the temple hasn't been built yet. The nation is only just becoming whole under the kingship of David. Progress is being made. But as the temple is constructed, these high places become a representation of conflicting loyalty to the Lord, of syncretism. We can worship Yahweh and other gods. We can worship Yahweh in the way we worship other gods. And that's not going to fly. So we've got these side issues that the author alludes to, but Solomon is not a total wash yet, and here's why. We're going to pick this up in verse 5, 1 Kings 3, verse 5. It says, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. 
and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. What an ask. What an incredible ask that Solomon is making. There's, go, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of stuff to unpack. And it all starts with the Lord showing up to him in a dream and saying, ask what I will give you. The purpose of this statement is to stimulate faith. This is a recurrent theme in the New Testament. We see it all the time. Asking is tied to faith. Ask and it will be given to you. Whatever you ask in my name, you have not because you ask not. There's a story in Mark 10 of a blind man seeking Jesus. He hears him pass by and he shouts out to him, son of David, son of David, twice. And when he's brought to Jesus, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, his ask is to see. And Jesus heals him because of his faith. So what we're seeing from Solomon here is that the ask is rooted in faith. The Lord is trying to stimulate that faith in Solomon. He shows up and says, what will you ask me for? And the first thing that we see Sol Solomon understands is that he knows who the Lord is. Look, look back at what he says to the Lord. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David. You have kept this great and steadfast love. That's covenant language. You have given him a son to sit on the throne. You have made your servant king in place of David, my father. This is what a true king in Israel is supposed to look like. He recognizes the Lord as the true king. He's reflecting on that covenant love, the faithful love of the Lord that has been present. The Lord is center. Solomon understands that. The second thing we see from Solomon is that he understands his position. He says, you have made your servant king, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. The Lord shows up and asks Solomon to respond in faith. We just talked about that. The, the ask is rooted in faith. But the ask is also rooted in humility. Solomon has not built up this kingdom. He has not done the work of conquest. He has not done the, the work of pushing out enemies. Solomon didn't fight the Philistines or achieve peace in the land. He is inheriting these things, and he knows it. When he says, I don't know how to go out or to come in, that's a Hebrew idiom that is talking about leadership. Business management, how to carry out duties. What Solomon is basically saying here is, I don't know how to do what I'm being asked to do. Anybody been there? That is humility. 
I think too often we see humility as weakness, as cowardice, and that's how we have adopted phrases like fake it till you make it, because we can't show other people that we don't know what we're doing. We can't show other people that we may, we may need help or guidance, and so we stumble around until we get some kind of idea or control of the situation. Humility, true humility, is acknowledging that you and me, we are the creature. We are limited in our capacity, but he is the creator, and he is unlimited in what he can do. Apart from him, we have nothing. Solomon is showing his hand to the Lord here. He's acknowledging who the Lord is and what the Lord has done, and he's saying, I don't know how to do what I am supposed to do. So let's go back to the actual ask. This is verse 9. We'll read this again. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? He says, Give your servant an understanding mind. The literal translation here is give your servant a heart of hearing. It's lev shomei. That's the Hebrew. Lev is the Hebrew word for heart. The heart was seen as the center of intellectual activity, emotional life. The heart was there to discern the world around you. The heart would help you think and make sense of the world. It was the center of all parts of human existence. Ancient Hebrews had no concept for the brain. It was all heart. Shomei, the verb here, is a participle of the word shema. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Shema. Shema, as a verb, means to hear. But it's more than just listening to. It's more than just sound waves bouncing around ear canals. To hear is to pay attention to, to focus on, to respond to, to obey, to internalize, and influence action. The Shema is actually what is known as, um, well, it's known as the Shema, but it's a passage from Deuteronomy that is probably the most famous and most often quoted verse from the entire Bible. For centuries, Jewish people have recited the verses of the Shema and have kept them on their doorposts and have centered their minds and hearts on these verses. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. We're not going to turn there. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the Shema. People of God, hear, internalize, focus on, respond to, obey. The Lord is one, and you will love him with all that you are. To govern the people before him. Solomon understands that he needs a heart that shamas. It's not just about knowing. It is about or having theoretical concepts of leadership and management. It's about having a heart that is tuned in to the Lord's frequency. A heart that is listening for what the Lord has to say. 
a heart that can correctly understand the reality around him and the humility to live as a human being in God's created world. I love what Solomon says here. It's not just about having a heart that hears, and that is the end. Like, cool, I know what God is doing, and I'm not going to do anything with it. It's about having a heart that hears so that he can discern between good and evil. Does that ring any bells for you? It should, because it's what got us all into trouble way back in Genesis 3. They wanted to decide for themselves what is good, what is evil. And here Solomon says, I need you to give me a heart that is tuned into you so that I can know what is good and what is evil. It's not his own authority Solomon is after here. It's the Lord's authority that he wants to be tuned into. We're okay. I'm trying to decide if I want to change directions. True wisdom, real wisdom, is a heart that hears. We live in a noisy and chaotic world. And how many of us can actually say, I have a heart that hears? A heart that is tuned in to the Lord's frequency. A heart that says to the Lord, what are you saying about this? How do I live because of this? It's listening and obedience together. I will listen and do what he says. He will teach me how to correctly understand reality. He will teach me the way I should walk. It's effort and it's action. That, that is what makes Solomon wise. It's not the size of a kingdom. It's not the economic prosperity. It's a heart that's in tune to the Lord. Let's pick this up in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or, life of your, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I will do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I will give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. I will give you a wise and discerning mind, a wise and discerning heart. Not only does the Lord give him what he asks for, he goes above and beyond. The kingdom of Israel will never be larger than it is under the reign of Solomon. 
It will never be more unified. It will never again be matched in economic prosperity or international position. Solomon's reign is the pinnacle of this Israel's success as a kingdom. And Solomon remains faithful to the Lord as long as Solomon stays faithful to the Lord. It will remain that way. The Lord says, if you walk in my ways, then I will lengthen your days. Solomon dies at 60 years old. I don't consider that a long life, even by Old Testament standards. It's because somewhere he gets off track. But we're not there today. One of the first stories we actually get about Solomon is, um, this is a pretty famous story, and it's, I was talking to a friend of mine, he was like, you have to tell this story, because it's like easily the top 10 Old Testament stories. I was like, it's not even top 50, but okay. <laughs> anyway, this story is um, of Solomon's wisdom and how there are two women, each has given birth to a baby. One, one of the women, her baby dies, and so she takes the other woman's baby. So they come before the king. And Solomon's solution is like, cut the baby in half. Everybody wins. And the mother of the baby is like, uh, no, that is a terrible idea. And the mother who, and the not mother of the baby is like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Everybody loses. But Solomon's solution was because he understood the reality of the situation. That is, he was able to discern what was going underneath. It wasn't just a pithy solution to a terrible problem. Like, yeah, problem solved. Everybody's covered. That's not what was happening. He knew somebody was lying in this situation. So how do we get to the heart of the situation? His ability to correctly discern the reality of the situation is the wisdom of the Lord in him. That's what we're seeing in that story. It's a good story. It's not top ten material. After the story, um, 1 Kings 3.28, if you want to jump there, it'll be up on the screen. 1 Kings 3.28 says, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. The wisdom of God was in him to do justice, to live correctly as a human in God's created world, to correctly bear the image of God to the people among and around him. Wisdom is more than just knowing the right answer. We're going to close our time in um, Proverbs 8. Worship team, you guys can come back up here. I'm going to return this to Shayla. I mentioned earlier that Solomon is credited uh, with writing Proverbs. And the idea of wisdom versus folly, uh, which folly is the opposite of wisdom, is a common theme throughout the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs 8 gives us a picture of wisdom personified. It's lady wisdom. It's not going to be up on the screen. I just want you to listen. I just want you to listen. Proverbs 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. 
To you, O men, I call, and my cry is, is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than the choice, choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. My fruit is better than gold, my yield better than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the paths of justice. Listen to this, ages ago, ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When he established the heavens, I was there. I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the inhabited world, delighting in the children of man. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life. Wisdom is the Lord's. It has been the Lord's from the beginning. Wisdom finds its origins in the Lord, but he gives it freely to those who seek it. Wisdom shouts to us in the heights, at the crossroads, at the gates. She does not make herself hard to find, almost begging us, listen, keep, watch, wait, find a heart that hears. We don't originate wisdom. We ask for wisdom. We seek after wisdom with hearts that are rooted in faith in the Lord, with hearts that are humbled before the Lord, with hearts that are ready to hear and to tune into and obey. This was Solomon's success. Not a vast and wealthy kingdom. Who cares? That was ultimately his downfall. But a heart that wanted to be in tune to the Lord was his success. His wisdom, the Lord's wisdom, is the answer for how to correctly live in this world, for how to correctly understand our reality. His wisdom is the answer for living justly, for living righteously. His wisdom teaches us how to be full human beings. So what do we do? It's a good story, what do we do? We're moving into a time of communion right now. And I think that this is the perfect opportunity to ponder and reflect where we've been this morning. You don't have to be a member at Eagle. We just ask that you be a follower of Christ. But here's the action step for this morning. Uh, as we approach this table of broken body, an invitation into what is the Lord's, here's what we do. The first thing we do is assess. If you have a note sheet, this is on your note sheet. It'll also be on the, white, on the boards. We assess. 
where is my faith? If the Lord were to appear to me today and say, what will you ask me? What would you say? What would you ask for? The second question is, where is my pride? Am I putting my confidence in myself or in any other thing that is not the Lord? Where is my faith? Where is my pride? Number three, what is my source of wisdom? Who or what has my heart been tuned into? So once, once you take a, time, a moment to assess, the next step is to repent, to listen as Lady Wisdom calls us. Repent. Where has my faith been? If it's anywhere other than the Lord, lay it down. Come back to the Lord. Where's my faith been? Have I been proud? Lay that down because pride's not going to get you anywhere. Acknowledge that you are the creature. He is the creator. And we need his help to live that way. Repent is my source of life and wisdom any other thing or person than the Lord. Because the secret is it's not going to give you life or wisdom if it's any other thing. Let it go. Come back to the Lord who gives freely. The story of the, the prodigal son, I think, is more a story about the prodigal and extravagant father who's not mad at the son, who just says, come back in, everything I have is yours. Again, and again, and again. Come back to the Lord and ask him. That's the final thing. We assess, we repent, and we ask. Give me a heart that hears. A heart that is in tune to who you are and what you are doing on this earth. Because I want to be a part. We're going to move into a song. If you haven't picked up communion supplies, they're on the table in the back. I'm going to pray over you. And then once we begin the song, you are free to gather in groups. You are free to gather on your own. You are free to go get communion supplies. But I would encourage you, take a moment to tune in to what the Lord is doing, what the Lord is saying. Because wisdom calls and is a gift. And I want to live correctly. And I know that many of you do too. So let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for wisdom. Wisdom that is yours. Wisdom that you delight in, that has been yours from the beginning. We ask that you would give us hearts that would ask, that would seek after it, hearts that would hear, hearts that would be in tune to you and what you're doing. Hearts that would represent and reflect you and your kingdom on this earth. Hearts that would say, your kingdom, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. As above, 
still here. What a gift you offer to us that we can ask, that you want to know. What would we ask of you? That you want to partner with, that you want to collaborate, that you want to transform and change hearts and bring us in to your kingdom, to your work. What a gift. And as we enter this time of communion, as we participate in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are king and your kingdom will never see an end. And we get to participate in that. And with humble hearts, we ask that you would fill this space with your presence, that we would leave here changed and transformed human beings because of who you are because your, your wisdom is rooted in our hearts and minds. We love you. We're grateful to you. And we ask because we trust in your mighty name. Amen.